0: Good evening. So grateful that you made it on this beautiful night. I wanted to open with a, a question tonight that I think maybe you've done it before. I know I've done it before. But have you ever pinched yourself to remind yourself that maybe you're awake? To awaken yourself or to question Am I dreaming right now? And so you pinch yourself. Maybe it's one of those good dreams, though. Sky high happiness and hope. And so you don't want to take that patch of skin between your thumb and index finger. You don't want to give it a squeeze and there you go, screeching back to the hard, cold truth of reality. Or maybe it's a a bad dream, and you're just like, I I can't handle this, this dark dreariness, depression, disappointment. And so you, you take that patch of skin between your thumb and index finger, you give it a squeeze, and you feel that stinging sensation, that tug of skin, and it reminds you that This is the realm of your reality. It's not a bad dream. This is really what is going on right now. If you've ever pinched yourself to make sure that you are still awake, to make sure you're simply not dreaming, only to find out the cold, hard reality that this is your present, this is your reality, you might know what it's like to be Habakkuk, living a bad dream living in dark and dreary days. The prophet and his people of Judah live in the shadow of empires. The Babylonian Empire has risen up to conquer lands, to pillage villages, to rape foreign territories. And then on this spiritual level, Habakkuk has this idea, this this word that God has spoken to him that he and his people of Judah they see Babylon as this war machine sent by God to correct and punish the people of Judah for the great and many sins. And Habakkuk wonders, how God could you use or allow Babylon to carry out this punishment, this correction for our sins? After all, they're way more evil and way more full of sin than we ever could be. But Habakkuk, he comes to know that even though Judah will experience destruction and exile and captivity at the hands of these evil Babylonians, God's not done yet. God's not done yet, and the Babylonians will soon get their turn. Although the people of Judah may squeeze that patch of skin between their thumb and index finger, trying to to realize that, Is this really reality? Nothing changes because this is the realm of the reality. But even though that may be the situation, Habakkuk speaks the prophetic word that God's not done yet. That the Babylonians, that their time will come. They will get their turn. Dustin spoke last week. On Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, he began with with verse 2. He spoke about how the prideful Babylonians, that they are as good as dead. They will be brought low as is the truth with anyone and everyone and every expression of pride. So may this act of being brought low be a wake-up call serve as a lesson for Babylon and for those whose lives are crooked, for all people in all places. As we learned last week, it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by faithfulness to God. Now tonight, as we continue with Habakkuk, we will see what sorrow awaits those whose lives are crooked. And as we do this, as we see Babylon called out for her excessive greed and idolatry, may we tonight have the humility not to be disillusioned or dreamy, but to take that patch of skin between our thumb and our index finger, To feel that immediate tug and sharp pain of a pinch that sends us screaming back into this reality that this is my issue too. Let us not be asleep to that knowledge and wisdom. So if you're able to stand tonight, I want to invite you to stand as we read from Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. We'll begin with. Says, what sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk. You force your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. But soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink, and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment, and all your glory will be turned to shame. You cut down the forests of Lebanon. Now you will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror will be yours. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. And God, as we approach this scripture tonight, it doesn't sound like good news. It doesn't sound like good news at all. But Lord, we know that you are in your holy temple. And Lord, that you are not contained But, Lord, you are all-powerful and almighty, that you are wonderful and good. And, Lord, even when we face hard times, difficult days, where we wonder, is this reality or is this just a dream? Lord, we know you're still there in the middle of it all. To help us to live and operate with that knowledge that we wouldn't trust in ourselves that we would write our lives because we know that those who are right with you, they live by faith. They live by their faithfulness. So we seek after that, Lord. We pursue that with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to begin with verse 15 tonight. We're going to walk through each verse of this Passage, don't let me forget the happy ending is coming at verse 20, all right? But verse 15, what sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk? You forced your cup on them so you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. Sounds like a block party gone bad, like really, really bad. The Babylonians, the bad guys in this picture, in this story of ours, have made the overrun nations drunk. The conquered peoples have been forced to drink from a strong cup of a strong drink. We'll call that strong drink beer. You know, perhaps a triple hopped 10.5% IPA. Because after all, the Babylonians were well known for their ancient breweries for their craft beer. I imagine here uh, this picture, a, a big, burly, nasty bully. And he's got one giant hand palming the face of a helpless child. And with his other giant hand, he pours beer after beer after beer after beer into the forced open mouth of this helpless child. And here this helpless child is choking and and unable to to withstand this beer boarding of sorts. Choking, coughing up suds and foam of beer. And all the while this big, burly, nasty beast of of a specimen is just laughing out loud. You can see there, tattooed on his arm, it looks like scribble, scrabble, prison ink. It says... Babylon, while here you have this helpless child who is now intoxicated, covered in his own vomit. His shirt sticks to his chest, and it says two words, the nations. I think this image, it's humiliating and heartless, but it's actually worse than that, as Habakkuk's words describe the horror of date rape and non-consensual sex. The Babylonians have ruthlessly taken advantage of the nations. What's worse is that it doesn't just seem to be a metaphor that compares Babylon to such brutal date rape behavior, but the metaphor and the reality are blended Together here, what I mean is Habakkuk's words may actually describe a real life event that the Babylonians practiced. Namely, the public humiliation of prisoners of war. They would strip them down naked before everyone. Imagine being in that situation, being in those circumstances. It would be utterly humiliating and shaming. But Babylon, what sorrow awaits you? God will judge you for taking advantage of the nations for your violence and for your bloodshed and for humiliation. And we who live in empire today should have humility and understanding that God, God's not always standing on the side of empires. But often God is on the side of those who are marginalized, those who are pushed down. You look all through Scripture. Who is God on the side of? The poor, the helpless, the needy, the widow, the broken, the beat down. He's not on the side of tyrants, but those who cry out to him in faithfulness and need. As Habakkuk continues with the word of the Lord, here comes the the long-awaited reversal of things. It's payback time. Verse 16 says, But soon it will be your turn. To be disgraced. That is, it will be your turn, Babylon, to be disgraced. Come, drink and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment. And all your glory will be turned to shame. Soon this majestic empire will be turned to ashes and disgrace. Forced to taste its own share of shame and humiliation. Babylon is here pictured as a disgraced and naked drunk, one who has lost all self-control and the respect of everyone, including his own self. Passers-by, they pass by and they look at him and they have pity on him, but they can't say that Babylon didn't deserve this. Those who are wise will tell you, sure, we saw it coming. Because after all, this is the picture that becomes the self-portrait of any and every person whose life is driven by the unquenchable thirst for lust and greed and power, control and pride. And in our world today, that's why we see marriages fail. Jobs lost. Tragedies happen. Friendships busted. Families broken. Churches die. Because this unquenchable thirst for lust, greed, power, control, and pride, it's always bound for misery and destruction. And yet, when we realize that all we need is found and made whole and completely complete in God, that's when we see marriages succeeding. That's when we see jobs just jumping into our laps, miracles being made manifest, friendships fast-growing, families flourishing, and churches that just can't be stopped. Let's do some table talk tonight. What in your life needs to be found and made whole and completely complete in God? In other words, where are you seeking approval, comfort, fulfillment, or confidence apart from God And why? Ready? Go. If you aren't really sure where, you know, you might be seeking approval or comfort or fulfillment or confidence, apart from God, you might be thinking like, oh, I'm not really doing that. Uh, I don't know. Not really. We're going to look at that a little bit later tonight before we close at a couple of areas where, man, I didn't realize these things I was gravitating toward instead of toward Toward God. So we're going to be looking at that a little bit more. Uh, But Babylon, here, as we see, had no regard for Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. They had no regard even for the other nations except to exploit them. They didn't care about the people they were conquering and killing and spreading, you know, shedding their blood and killing the families and children and wives and tearing apart relationships. All this was was an unquenchable thirst for lust and greed and power and control and pride. It led to a consumption that ultimately consumed them. It's how I feel when I watch the Super Bowl or when I watch TV sometimes, or I go into, I went into um, Bulldog Liquidators for the first time. Apparently, I went on a Saturday morning, and I decided to take uh, Zeke, uh, our our little, you know, he's 18 months old now, but he was like, I don't know, 12 months old at the time. And uh, it was just a madhouse in there, Saturday morning, and it was just like, consumption consumerism to the max there was you know sections of just stuff that no one really needs but everyone's gonna buy it because you might need it but then I I go behind this one area it's my first time ever being there and it's kind of like roped off and I see all these people I'm like what's going on back here and I see like pallets of something I couldn't even see and like a pack of Uh, hyenas they were just like digging through tearing through this clothes flying this way and that I was like what is going on I had to go like get out of there take a bath take a shower clean up because I was covered in this consumeristic idea and mindset that's what Babylon is doing they have this unquenchable thirst for lust greed power control pride it's consumption that ultimately consumed them. Verse 17a says, you cut down the forests of Lebanon. Now you will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror, you imagine the terror of animals fleeing away, running, right? Now their terror will be yours. For all your symbolic, And actual deforestation of what's called Lebanon, the western Palestinian states. For the sake of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon's large building projects. And for all your symbolic and actual uprooting of life. You will be stumped. You will be turned into a stump. Verse 17b says you committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the town's With violence, you've set the world ablaze. With shame and nakedness, deforestation and the uprooting of life, you've altogether destroyed the animal kingdom. You've made murder widespread. And thanks to you, Babylon, violence is an everyday value of society. And because of this ethical and moral injustice... Because of this unquenchable thirst for lust and greed and power and control and pride, God's not done yet. And Babylon will soon get her turn in the long-awaited reversal of things. As we see Babylon called out for her excessive greed and idolatry, may we have the humility to realize that maybe this is going on in my life. That we would not be disillusioned or or dreamy, but that we would squeeze that patch of skin between our thumb and index finger and realize as we feel that immediate tug and sharp pain that this is my issue too. Let us not be asleep to that reality. How do we as a society care for creation? How are we contributing to the exploitation of resources? Is there a better way to do the things that we are doing? Can we consume less? You know, recycle, reduce, reuse, that sort of stuff. Here's actually how God cares for creation. In Psalm 65, verse 9. You take care of the earth and water it, making it rich and fertile. The river of God has plenty of water. It provides a bountiful harvest of grain, for you have ordered it so. You drench the plowed ground with rain, melting the clods and leveling the ridges. You soften the earth with showers and bless its abundant crops. You crown the year with a bountiful harvest, Even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness become a lush pasture. And the hillsides blossom with joy. The meadows are clothed with flocks of sheep. And the valleys are carpeted with grain. They all shout and sing for joy. If God created and owns, and loves, and values, and sustains, and redeems creation, why why don't we? Why don't we? Let's talk about that. What changes can you make to better value and sustain God's creation? How can this be tied to serving and worshiping God? Ready? Go. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back together here. We're actually going to change gears in the next few verses as Habakkuk speaks of a new charge against the Babylonians. That is the charge of idolatry. We've talked a lot about greed already. Now we're moving to idolatry. Verse 18 says, What good or of what value is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? Well, this image, it deceives you because you've deceived yourself. You've deceived yourself and found worth in and value in something that does not hold value or worth how foolish to trust in your own creation a god that can't even talk and yet nowadays we've got alexa and siri and google products of our own creation which are neat but not neat enough to put faithful trust in i can't even get siri to call j-rod it's like gerard I don't know who Gerard is. Sorry, I don't know that name. But Habakkuk, like the other prophets, saw the foolishness and idolatry and called it out, exposing it. Verse 19 says, What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us. To speechless stone images you say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. Good luck trying to get those idols to speak. Good luck trying to get those action figure figurines to say something. But even with Alexa and Siri and Google, they're still only lifeless objects. You know, it's easy when we hear all this talk in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, about idols and worshiping idols. We, we tend to disassociate ourselves from it because we're like, well, I don't worship any like rock or wooden figurine of sorts. I, I'm not like stupid people who are attached to objects. But spend an hour away from your phone. A day even. Or two days And tell me how attached you are. I get it, though. You know, you could make the argument that a phone is our way of staying connected to people and being social. But as we will soon see, idolatry isn't just a matter of wood and stone overlaid with silver and gold. It's a lot more widespread than we might imagine. For a moment, I want us to focus on an idolatry that actually requires no wood or stone or even access to Wi-Fi. People of position and power and prosperity often idolize the business or the agency or the church that gave them that status, that position, that prosperity... It becomes a constant obsession. It can even become a god. And you might say, well, that's not me. I don't, I don't worship idols. But why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises? Or why do we live selfishly? Of course, the easy answer is to say, well, I'm weak and I'm sinful. But the cold, hard truth is that there's something besides Jesus that we feel we need in order to be happy. Something more important to our hearts than God. Something enslaving us through unhealthy desires. And now to change this, like we probably should, it would be a good idea, we must identify the idols that are in our hearts. In Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit God. He uh, counterfeit gods. He shares 20 questions that will help us to diagnose the idols of our hearts. But we'll just take a look at, at twelve or 11 because I couldn't whittle it down to 10. 11 were just too good. So I, I'm going to read one line and then I'll give like a scenario and you can follow along. So if you say or I say to myself, life only has meaning. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if... I have power and influence over people. That's called power idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I am loved and respected by so-and-so. That's called approval idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience. A particular quality of life, that's called comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning, or I only have worth if I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of such and such. That's called control idolatry. Life only has meaning, or I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. That's called helping idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am highly productive And getting a lot done, that's called work idolatry. And that's something that's been ingrained in me. I'm a son of a firefighter, so days off for me are spent doing projects and not really taking a day off. Life only has meaning, or I only have worth if I am being recognized for my accomplishments. And I am excelling in my work. That's called achievement idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth or financial freedom and very nice possessions. That's called materialism, ideology. Uh, idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and am accomplished in its activities. That's called religion, idolatry, or Pharisaism. You're a Pharisee. Life only has meaning, or I only have worth, if Mister or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. It's called relationship idolatry. And the last one: life only has meaning, or I only have worth, if I have a particular kind of look or body image. It's called image idolatry. It's really exposing, and it makes us feel naked and a little ashamed of ourselves when we look at that list and realize, man, I might have all those idols in my life. That makes me feel weird and bad. But let's uh, just look more closely at the first four categories. Power, approval, comfort, and control. And I think this really makes us even more uncomfortable, because if you seek power, maybe without even realizing it, success or winning or influence, your greatest nightmare is humiliation. People around you often feel used, and your problem emotion is anger. Don't point fingers. If you seek approval, that is affirmation, love, or relationships, your greatest nightmare is going to be rejection. People around you often feel smothered, and your problem emotion is cowardice. If you seek comfort, privacy, lack of stress, freedom, your greatest nightmare is stress or demands. People around you often feel neglected. Your problem emotion is boredom. If you seek control, that is self discipline, certainty, standards, your greatest nightmare. Uncertainty. People around you often feel condemned. And your problem emotion is worry. So after all this, it's easy to see maybe we're not so different than the idol-worshipping Babylonians after all. As we see how maybe we're not so different than the idol-worshipping Babylonians, may we have the humility not to be illusioned or to be dreamy about this, but that we would we would take that patch of skin between our thumb and index finger and give it a good squeeze and realize that this is reality, that this is my reality, and something has to change. The idols of my heart need to leave. They're an issue that I need to wrestle with. Because what sorrow awaits any and every idol of the heart? No idol, after all, will bring about what our hearts truly desire. I don't care if it's a relationship or approval or comfort. They are not going to fulfill you. None of that will fulfill you. It will always leave you longing for more. For they are mere fabrications and shams. All those things are good, comfort and stability and relationships. They are wonderful, but they are merely gifts given from the true giver. As Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until found in you. Until found in you, God. And that restlessness, it leads to symbolic and actual deforestation and uprooting of life. It leads to ethical and moral injustice, to an unquenchable thirst for lust and greed and power, control and pride. But when we come to realize that all we need is found and made whole and completely complete in God, everything changes. Verse 20 says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Silence the lust, the greed, the power, the control, the pride, and instead find what you're looking for in God. Be made whole in him and completely complete. That's what Habakkuk teaches us. Look at the proud, he says in chapter 2 verse 4. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. And so, Lord, tonight, as we worked through this troubling passage about destruction and doom, what can we do but to be quiet and silent before you? To realize that, Lord, you are worthy And the idols of our hearts that we've been chasing after, maybe unknowingly, it needs to change. Help us to find our approval and confidence, our confirmation and hope in you. Not in people or places or things or excursions. Those are all great. But God, our true value and hope is in you. Tonight, as we've talked about a lot of different stuff, I pray we would walk away knowing that our task, our task is to to live by faithfulness before you. And when we do that, we become right with you because Jesus has made a way. By his blood, he has made us righteous. We thank you for the faithfulness of him. And we ask, Lord, that we would be faithful too. I love you and praise you, Lord. I thank you for this group of people who is eager to live out your goodness and love, not to be wild about being an empire, but to be wild about loving people one person at a time. That is our hope and goal and purpose, to love you and love others. So Lord, we we ask you send us out tonight with the few remaining hours of the night to live it out and love you completely and love those around us with great passion and desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.